well, everyone drinks the Mpesa juice and it's very sweet and very, uh, yeah. <laughs> it gives you a lot of nirvana and uh, everyone thinks that they can be Mpesa. Hello and welcome to another episode from the Global Startup Movement, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging startup ecosystems all around the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you for tuning in. I'm really excited to bring you this special episode of the podcast today, which we recorded in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, at the recent Africa FinTech Summit. You can look forward to taking in insider insights from three stellar local tech ecosystem players, as well as hearing TPG Capital's Saad Sheikh offer useful investor perspectives on some of the more interesting things happening in Ethiopia's emerging tech industry. Before we get into the episode, allow me to give a warm thank you to Adiu Communications for sponsoring this podcast. Adiu Communication Service PLC is one of Ethiopia's leading technology infrastructure solutions provider, serving business needs in telecommunications, software development and maintenance, information system solutions, and intelligent and renewable energy solutions towards improving lives in the communities across Africa. Visit adiucommunications.com to learn more. So we're starting things off with a conversation that I had with Adam Abate, who is the co-founder and CEO of leading Ethiopian IT solutions provider, Apposite, to anchor the rest of the episode with what's happening right now in Ethiopia and what's brewing in the startup ecosystem. My name's Adam Abate. I'm the CEO of a company called Apposite. We've been operating in Ethiopia for the past 12 years. We are a technology services company and we focus to a very large extent on digital financial services. We also do a lot of work in digital agriculture, but going forward, we're going to be focused on uh, our digital financial services practice mm. to a larger extent. So Ethiopia is virgin territory. There really isn't much that exists in the digital space. We have no e-commerce to speak of. We have very little fintech to speak of that's achieved any significant scale. It's not really a part of people's lives. So I think from the demand side, consumers are really itching to participate in the digital economy. I want to be able to order something and have it delivered to my house. I want those efficiencies and those conveniences. I don't want to have to wait in line for four hours to pay my utility bill and so forth. So I think there's a lot of demand for more efficient services, which the digital economy can provide. From the supply side, I think, like I said, it's a, it's a virgin market, a huge population, a very young population. There's very little, little that has been done. So numerous people, both domestic and foreign, see Ethiopia as kind of the next frontier and see it as a place of a lot of opportunity. I think it has a, a history of very rapid economic development, but a policy that has been more closed as of last year, there's been a lot of excitement in terms of the, this economy that's been protected for so long, opening up. Um, obviously, there are the headlines of the telecom liberalization and privatization, but there's been a lot of other, other work behind the scenes, maybe that not everybody is aware of, um, that's increasingly opening the economy up and creating space for the private sector. Ethiopia is largely dominated by the government in terms of economic activity and so forth. So I think the government 
more so than before is explicitly recognizing the role of the private sector and trying to create space for both domestic and foreign companies to open. So I think people see a crack in the door that's been closed for so long, and that's what's exciting them. Mm. And so what are some of the challenges that still exist? I think one thing that stands out to me is we were talking earlier this year, one of the things that you bring up is like, well, you know, if, if we work together, how do, like, how do I pay you? You know, what are some of the challenges that's still holding the ecosystem back? There are a lot of challenges and there are challenges that not one company or the government by itself can't solve alone. They're really ecosystem challenges. If I want to, say, pay my utility bill, there's a lot of things that have to line up in the right way for that service to be usable by people. So I think there's a lot of challenges in the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and this is generally true across the economy. Um, and I think at the macro level, the government has to fix certain issues such as foreign uh, for, forex shortages. There's a lot of issues around regulation. There's a lot of issues around infrastructure, for example, payments infrastructure. Right now, the most you can do in terms of uh, integration between financial institutions is you can use an ATM. Uh, and withdraw your money from in, any bank, but that's about it. Uh, if you go to a shop, you'll see five or six POS devices that aren't integrated yet. That mm. is coming up soon. But bank accounts, for example, are, are not yet integrated. So some of the key financial infrastructure to make this ecosystem work efficiently uh, is not there. And that is generally true across the board. So there's a lot of work. It's not going to be easy and it needs to be coordinated, but uh, other countries have done it. Yeah, and we can learn from that. So, I'm yeah. optimistic. So we're, we're, I mean, we're really on the ground floor of of fintech here in Ethiopia. So, I mean, Ethiopia is interesting. This is my first time in the country, and the first thing I notice is when I travel all throughout Africa. You know, Kenya is is very similar to Tanzania, which is very similar to Rwanda, and like you there. But like when you come to Ethiopia. There's like it's very very clear that there's like this is like an, its own island within Africa, and Addis has been my best first impression out of any African city that I've been to. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like things work here. So much construction happening. It's Absolutely. amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. There's a really really tall building that's right. Is that a bank that's that's coming up? That's or, the Commercial yeah. Bank of Ethiopia. Okay. That is uh, the gorilla in the industry. Mm. Commercial, there's about 18 commercial banks. Okay. Two of them are government run, the rest are private. And the commercial bank of Ethiopia controls more than all the deposits combined of all the other private banks. So it's, it's, a, it's a very big bank. In okay. Yeah, it's the incumbent. All right. So planting their flag right in the middle as. Yeah, I believe I, th- that's, I think it's the tallest building in East Africa, right? Probably. Or it's going to be. Probably, yes. Yeah. Yes. When it comes to VC money, what do you think needs to happen for more angel investors and more local funds to, to come up? Like, Because I think one of the issues and one of the challenges that I hear a lot from international investors, and it's not just Ethiopia, it's, it's across Africa, it's repatriation. Like, well, I invest in this company, how am I going to get my money out of it? Like, how am I going to get my money back, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that doesn't have that problem is if we have more local funds, more high net worth individuals locally that are investing in startups. And so what do you think needs to happen? Like it might be a big exit or some big headline happening to, to activate more capital locally to investing in high risk startups. Yeah. I guess as part of the ecosystem, we don't have many stories to tell, right? We don't have many stories of tech companies that have started small and grown big. 
I'm really excited that there are a few companies coming up now, such as Ride, that have achieved some sort of tipping point and traction. And we need more stories like that. I think if you have more stories like that, then people can relate and high net worth individuals and other investors, local investors can understand and see how an investment may pay off. Outside of that, I think the legal structures to facilitate such investments need to be developed further. There's a new draft investment law that's coming out that does try to address angel investments, especially Mm. some of the concerns that foreign investors have had in terms of minimum investment requirements and so forth. Um, In the fintech sector, unfortunately, as far as we know, foreign investors or shareholders are not going to be permitted Mm. for the coming few years. So um, I personally have issue with that because I think regulation could be a bit more nuanced. We've worked in Nigeria with PAGA for the past 10 years. We know how much investment is required to achieve the kind of scale required to really make it a ubiquitous and profitable business. And I don't think that kind of capital exists in Ethiopia. Unlike China, for example, where there is a lot of local capital looking for investments of these kinds, I don't think that exists yet. And so I think we're handicapping the sector by not allowing foreign capital. And I'm not necessarily advocating for the full liberalization of the financial sector, but there are more nuanced ways of doing this, Uh, maybe in percentage ownerships, uh, maybe classifying fintech not as financial sector. After all, we're not trying to intermediate funds. We're not trying to be a bank or a microfinance institution. We work in a very specific area. So I think there are ways to, to facilitate that, but it's largely dependent on, on regulation and uh, investment law. How easy is it to get a banking license here? Because one thing I notice, just like driving through Addis, like there are so many banks, so many different ones. Like, and it's not, I'm not just talking about like a lot of different branches. It's just like all sorts of different brands and banks. And yeah. that, well, like that's I, really standing out to me. Like I said, I think we have 18. I think in other markets, there are uh, more banks. You're also seeing a concentration of banks in the, in the capital. Mm. Uh, only 20% of Ethiopia's population is urban. So you have a large amount of the population that's not really addressed by brick and mortar banks. Mm. But uh, in terms of a banking license, well, you'd have a very hard time. I'd say you'd have an impossible time because <laughs> as, as, as a foreigner. Right. But other than that, I mean, there's a process you have to go through. There are certain capital requirements that the banks are trying to, they've increased over the year. Mm. And that's just a process you go through, but you are allowed to. Uh, interestingly, now there's new regulation that allows Ethiopians that hold foreign passports, but, have, but that are of Ethiopian origin usually referred to the diaspora, to allow them to invest in the financial sector. So that includes me, for example. It's a big um, win we see for us. So more evidence of opening up of the sector. Hmm. Um, but it's just a process you have to go through with the, with the regulator, the National Bank of Ethiopia. Maybe, hmm, maybe the, the, short, the short-term solution to, to lack of early-stage capital might just be activating more diaspora capital to come back and you know, invest in startups. What I've seen all around the world is that Countries that have a, a, a thriving ecosystem, there's an element of a stronger sense of nationalism because as a high net worth individual, as an investor, there has to be an element of, you know, you understand that this is for the ecosystem. Like these investments are very, very high risk. You're probably not going to get your money back in most of them. And so there's, I think, I think there's an element of like the countries that have a more 
sense of a national pride mm. have more momentum in their startup ecosystem because investors are willing to kind of you know put money to support the entire ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, um, I, t I completely agree. I think the government of Ethiopia agrees. The diaspora is seen as a, a very important catalyst, both in terms of financial contributions, but also knowledge contribution, influence, connections, and so forth. Uh, so that's, yeah, the diaspora is, is a very important stakeholder. Um, and because of their, like you said, their perhaps emotional or national uh, pride and interest, they, they can present a different type of capital. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely aware of much coordinated diaspora investment mm. yet, but I think that probably most likely fit into kind of the angel investment kind of structure. You don't need that much capital to kind of support a good base of startups. Like there's plenty of funds, especially in Nigeria. Like I'm not sure if you're familiar with Microtraction, um, but they invest, a ve I mean, a very small amount, like 15K into startups. Yeah. And then they, they, they follow up with a larger round if they show progress. But, you know, it doesn't take a large pool of capital to kind of seed five, six, seven startups that could have a massive impact. Yeah. And so I, I would love to see more efforts of crowdfunding a, a fund, yeah. you know, amongst the diaspora. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, I think, you know, the startup scene, especially young entrepreneurs with ideas, it's still very early. I am encouraged by what I see, but there is a very long way to go. Um, a, a, an, an app. It's still early and there's a very long way to go. And yet it's the innovators, early movers and investors that come in early who time and time again are the ones who reap the biggest rewards in the end. And that will certainly be the case in Africa's second most populous country. And now we're going to switch to the foreign investor perspective on the market right now with Saad Sheikh from TLG Capital. Saad has deployed about $100 million in investments across sub-Saharan Africa with phenomenal returns. And just like myself, he was in Ethiopia for the first time to get a feel of the market and to gauge what opportunities there are in the ecosystem right now for TLG Capital. We've talked a lot about the opportunities here, the exciting GDP numbers that exist next to a nascent startup ecosystem with all these opportunities. But we have to be realistic about if you put money in this country, what risks come up? What political risks? Can you get your money out? And so we're going to dive into that. But thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure and a very interesting topic. Absolutely. Let's just start this off with a little bit about you. I mean, you know, what's your background? How did you end up becoming a partner at, at TLG? And we'll go from there. Sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a little bit of a diverse uh, strategy that I employed. I'm an engineer by background, went into the tech base, worked for Nokia for about seven, eight years. And then before the demise happened, bailed out, went into Accenture as um, one of their directors to run UK and Ireland for management consulting. From there, this opportunity presented itself because I knew the founder since fourth grade, and he decided to move out of Goldman Sachs and start his own enterprise, which was TLG Capital. And I joined TLG Capital full-time end of 2013, 2014, started looking at the portfolio, fixing that up, and beyond that, now run the investment team. Uh, we're a fund of about $100, $120 million, primarily from European and the Far Eastern investors. We've got one DFI, which is uh, the Swedish government, and we're chasing after more DFIs, as you do. So yeah, but uh, we've deployed close to $110 million across Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, outside South Africa, uh, very broad in our remit, so almost sector agnostic, but we are continuing to look for more opportunities. 
our yields are phenomenal. So people love to invest in TLG. We give an annualized dividend to investors, which is between 8 to 10% on the US dollar. Plus, we've got equity upside in our deals that takes the return closer to the higher teens. We're an open-ended fund as well, which is a bit of a unique model. So with that, I mean, I'm very excited to be in Ethiopia trying to explore opportunities. But the question that you've asked is a very, very strong one. I'd love to dig deeper into it. What is your perception of Ethiopia before you came here? What was your what were your thoughts? What you know? What was your perception of the country? The Great question. And exactly as you said, I had broad numbers in my mind: seven to eight percent annualized growth, one of the fastest growing economies on the continent. Great infrastructure, a closed economy that is has not yet opened up to broader foreign capital. That was my mindset. That okay, this is this is the country that you're going to. They're not very open to foreign ideas and they want to build organically. So that's the backdrop. And that's what I'm trying to either validate or clarify if I've got anything wrong. And so I would see the, the GDP growth numbers and, you know, Ethiopia exists like as its own little island within yeah. Africa. And it's like, it makes sense why specifically the tech and startup ecosystem has been slow because there's a, there's a political structure that has been a little bit skeptical of technology and the risks that that introduces into the market. But I think with this new regime that's in place, they see, they see that technology is the way forward, right? Absolutely. Um, and so now, now that you're here, you know, what, what was your initial impressions on the ground or like, what's, yeah. did, did anything change? Well, first of all, what really resonated with me was how friendly people are, how open to ideas individuals are. And that does not reflect entirely in what the government's reflection is. The government's reflection is a little bit more closed, introvert. The people are very extrovert. They want more. They want to learn. They want to introduce new ideas into their businesses, their lives, etc. So that openness was something I was not expecting. And I had that impression on an individual level that they're all going to be closed, not mindset, but closed views. Um, but that's not the case. So that's the first thing that really hit me that this is a place that definitely I can do business. People are enterprising. As you go into Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, as you land, you'll see very entrepreneurial activities, small micro SMEs operating, developing businesses for their own families. And then you come into the cities and you see development through larger corporates. Here, I think it's a top-down approach. Government leading all types of development and then the, the, the masses following suit. But as you said, I think that tech ecosystem is changing that mindset. And as we were talking, that, that, that tech mindset is kind of hitting against almost a little bit of a brick wall. But that brick wall being the government, being the institutions are also weakening in the strength that they had around a closed ecosystem. They are now opening up to ideas of opening up the banking system. So somebody was telling me today that the closed end loop that they were in, where if you're an equity investor, you can't get your money out and you, you have to find alternatives, that is now under discussion in the ministries across the board to try to, um, to, try to address it, to try to introduce foreign capital. Yet, they are inherently careful, which by no means is a criticism. I think that's very good. They pushed back on ideas and, and thoughts that the IMF and the World Bank are bringing, but not all ideas are for the betterment of a country. So, so it's very good that they're siphoning off the ones that they like and incorporating that, but the ones that they feel are detrimental, they're just kind of putting a pause on it. 
I see how integrated African Development Bank is with their financial institution, which I think is phenomenal. African Development Bank has a single goal of developing African countries, enterprises, etc. Um, so I feel I feel that's a great partnership. In addition to that, a congregation of this nature just tells you the openness of the government. Having a ministerial presence as an opening remark just gives you the idea that everybody's thinking about these type of things. They realize that there is diversity, but also a little bit of outside-the-box thinking that is now coming to the forefront, and that is not all bad. Again, skepticism is good, but openness also has to come into play. So I see that little bit of friction between government institutions and private institutions, but in no, no way or means is that a bad thing. I think that is how this country, this area, as you say, as an island, will open up its doors to the right ideas, to the right institutions, and I'd be very, very keen to get involved. Yeah, well, it's an interesting comment on the on the government's willingness to push back against the World Bank and the IMF because I think most African countries and their leaders just kind of have got along with it. I mean, yeah. look what's happened in Zimbabwe and what, what the World Bank like. It's not good. No, it's not absolutely. good what happened there. And so there is, a, I, I agree, there's a healthy amount of of skepticism of of the outside world coming in, and yeah. you know, I think that's reflected in the need to have your local partners, which, which is true of any African country, yeah. but in Ethiopia, it's even. Yeah, even more true. Absolutely. Such a good point that you make because a lot of uh, foreign investors will come in and frown upon this idea of having local partners. I've invested um, over $100 million, but not a single penny has gone in without a local partner. And I feel that local presence is imperative to be successful. The key question is finding the right local partner. And we've got a few things wrong. I won't deny that. But without a local partner, you will not be successful or it's very, very hard to be successful. And you need to kind of lobby a lot more than you would have to if you have a local partner. That local content, local mindset, local uh, face just gives that authenticity to a business. That's how I felt. And all the successful businesses are to reflection where TLG is never really overpowering the individual, the, uh, the local indigenous. Instead, it is strengthening the indigenous partner. And I, th- I feel that that is not a bad thing. That is really, one, supporting the local ecosystem, but two, supporting the foreign investor being successful. So I actually think that that's the, that's the right formula. You just have to figure out what the blend needs to be within, the, within that partnership. Who's going to be the trendsetter? Who's going to be the decision maker? But if they're open-minded and they're willing to take foreign guidance, and again, filter it, but take the guidance, I've seen our businesses prosper and thrive. Hmm. So based on what you've seen with TLG across the continent, what do you think is more important for Ethiopia to have a thriving startup ecosystem? Do you think it's more important for them to activate international capital and international investors? Or do you think it's more important for them to activate local money and, and you know rich people that live in Ethiopia? That's a, that's a billion dollar question, <laughs> if I can say that. I feel what I've seen in local ecosystems that we've invested in, the primary driver of growth is foreign capital. Once you get that and you get to a scale that you are sustainable, local capital will start pouring in. Local capital, as I understand it, in Africa is the most sticky, but also the most difficult to get access to. Let's take Nigeria as an example. 
the founder of um, of Zenith Bank, the founder of um, other institutions like Dan Gote, they were the first investors in the local early startup stage or that local ecosystem that was developed, being developed. It was the Y Combinators of this world. It was foreign investors. It was SoftBank, etc. But the moment that capital came in, follow-on investments were streaming in from local capital. And that really is, the my, in my mind, that is the best formula for growth. Because what you want to do is early stage or uh, in the uh, in early on in the process, get foreign investors, foreign ideas, and align with what international uh, individuals, corporations like. Once you align to that and you can then prove that your business model works, local capital will just flow in. You can raise local currency bonds. You can tap up rich people's capital. You can tap up banks. It becomes a walk in the park. And I'll give you an example where we've seen that. Um, Platinum Credit is a microfinance in East Africa. Started with capital from uh, Centum, uh, which is a local institution, but they weren't growing at a rapid pace. Centum sold their stake to Skybound Capital, which is South African, but has a lot of foreign investors in it. Skybound is what or who took them to the next level. Now they have so much capital that they're saying no to the capital. And this is a microfinance company. Microfinances never say no but they're generating significant amount of net profit, millions of dollars, and foreign investors are pouring capital in, local investors are pouring capital. They, they can raise a local currency bond any day of the week. So, I mean, they're sitting pretty um, and, and just, uh, you know, enjoying uh, the fruits of what they've built. So I, I personally think that that's the best recipe. You get the foreign investor in, that's ideas, that's thought process, that procedures, which local capital sometimes does not come with, and then follow up with, lo- with local capital. Mm. I agree. I think, that's, I think that's right. So then repatriation is like the number one issue to solve. Exactly. That's Absolutely. It. That becomes such a key issue right now, right? That the ecosystem will not get developed until foreigners come in because they've, they've got so much more experience. They have 50, 100 years ahead of where Ethiopia is right now, or most of Africa, to be honest. Not leveraging those ideas is, a, if I may say so, a bit of a mistake. And you can't do that unless you give investors confidence. You help them build their trust. And that's a bit of a responsibility of the government, in, in all honesty. The ideas are there. The youth is driven. They have those ideas. They're putting them forth. And this type of ecosystem or a conference is a great mechanism of pulling those ideas out. But then the government role kicks in pretty quickly. So I'm joined right now by Yem Chenyalu, who is the CEO and founder of Moneta Technologies. They are an amazing technology company in Ethiopia that's solving some of the underlying infrastructure problems and missing gaps that is going to unlock a lot of value in the e-commerce sector uh, and in the fintech sector. So Yem, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Andrew. Can you just start us off? Just tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to found Moneta, which I guess you're now branded as Amole, right? Yes. You know, um, I uh, was born in Ethiopia and uh, grew up 
in Sweden and Mexico and uh, eventually in the U.S. I lived in the U.S. for about 30 years before I uh, came to Ethiopia. Where in the U.S.? Uh -huh, Chicago. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, Chicago is uh, home uh, for me. Grew up in doing programming work and uh, using a machine language assembly. And then by 93, I decided that uh, I need to do my own thing and uh, started a consulting firm. Between 93 and 2001, I founded about five different companies, two software companies, one consulting companies, and managed to sell some of them. And uh, decided in, uh, in the uh, mid-2000 to come to Ethiopia and see what I can do to help Ethiopia in terms of technology. Coming from a, a family of uh, big achievers as uh, Ethiopians, I felt like I owe Ethiopia a lot, and I needed to do something bigger. We saw that the uh, technology, the low-hanging fruit was in the financial sector and telecom. Mm. And uh, if we made a lot of impact on those two sectors, uh, this is where the largest gain is going to be, and thus we can move Ethiopia forward. So um, I was uh, very lucky. I met a person on the plane that was looking to start a bank in Ethiopia at the time, in 2007. We talked through how to start a bank and what type of services and all those different things. Didn't even uh, know each other's name until we landed in Ethiopia and uh, we exchanged names, decided to meet the next day and uh, we met and uh, we co-founded uh, Zeman Bank with a single st uh, branch strategy and to have a whole technology to support that bank. And the idea was to get Zaman Bank to be able to do what we are trying to do with Amole uh, today. In those days, there is no smartphone, but there is SMS text and there is USSD. And our whole goal was to be able to do a lot of the banking services and uh, for the financial inclusion using those kind of technologies. So fast forward, that did not happen because of the regulatory hurdles and those kind of things. So we decided that we'll wait and do something else. So um, in 2013, we got the mobile money and agency banking regulation came out. So when uh, we saw the regulation at the time, it was not really conducive. You know, we felt really uh, there is no place for fintech to play, to play a role. It was bank-led and the license and all the... Uh, we would be the fifth wheel in a car to do mobile money. So we said, you know, we're going to sit out and uh, wait. But that regulation stayed for a very long time. Those who jumped in into that bandwagon early on, now they are operating their fifth year. When we assess the environment and the culture and uh, their uptake, didn't go anywhere. And when we are looking at the reasons why, uh, the regulation is, has a lot to do with it. And also not doing enough research about the Ethiopian culture. Everyone took the M-Pesa model. Well, everyone drinks the M-Pesa juice and it's very sweet and very... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it gives you uh, a lot of nirvana. And uh, everyone thinks that they can be M-Pesa. And they take that use cases and implement. And that's what uh, they have done. And that did not really serve the Ethiopian. See, in Kenya, you have everyone belongs to a village. So when they are born, their birth certificate is given to them from the village. When they die, the death certificate is from that village. But everyone is born in Nairobi. 
but the birth certificate comes from their village mm. of their ancestry. So everyone has some kind of a tie to their village. So either they are paying uh, for a land that they own, any kind of other things that tie them. In Ethiopia, we don't have that tie to a village. When we move from one to the next, the next place is our home. So there is not, no reason for me to uh, keep a tie where I need to send money to relatives and so forth. Everyone moves because everyone lives everywhere. It's not segregated by ethnic groups and so forth. So uh, the fact that me sending money back home, the main motto in Mpesa is send money home. Well, home is where I live. There is no home for me to send. Uh, my mom is where I live. So there is no such need for a P2P. Mm-hmm. So as a result, there is no P2P in the Ethiopian market, only a single community in the eastern part of Ethiopia where the Somali region is. That's where most of the P2P happens. Uh, mm-hmm. But all the other regions, there isn't a uh, P2P. So when we saw that, we decided that we'll do research. So we did a research for about 10 months, over a thousand man days worth of uh, research in terms of the behavior the need in terms of transactions and all those. And we came into an interesting discovery. And that interesting discovery is that, you know what? Everyone wants to be able to do transaction. They need convenience. They need to be able to get, if we are talking to a business or a merchant, he needs to get his product, the product that he wants to order is in the city in Addis. And he is in a second tier city where he needs to order it. He has to send money. Or he has to physically go there, buy it, put it on a truck, and uh, bring it back. So every when you look at distribution in Ethiopia, everything comes in through the Djibouti port or the Bole International Airport, into Addis, into Mercato, which is the largest open market in the world, and distributes to secondary and tertiary cities all the way to a town. So a small town would do business with the next town up and it goes up the chain. So if distribution goes that way and the movement of money goes that way and all those different things, we felt like, okay, there is a reason for it and we need to understand why. So we, we followed that model in terms of how we launch Amole. And the biggest thing uh-huh, is that it's a huge consumer market, 105 million uh, population. And everyone queues everywhere. We see queues. And we were wondering why are people queuing? And it's because they want to buy certain things. Or there is scarcity of different products and so forth. And then when we talk to the brands and the manufacturers and the the factories, they say, no, we have plenty of inventory. We don't have a... But your product is not being sold here. Your product is not being done over here. And they tell us, Oh, no, uh, we have a lot of, uh, it's maybe that uh, business has not purchased our product. But what is happening is that there is inefficiency in, a, in the distribution because there is no visibility. The uh, brands don't have visibility or forecasting and all those different things that the business needs. So when they try to sell, they fill up their trucks, they go through the route. Do you want, uh, Andrew, do you want uh, 10 cases? And uh, you'd say, no, I only want five. The next guy, maybe my truck did not have enough cases, so I'm going to skip him because I don't have any more. I cannot sell him. So there is an artificial shortage of a lot of goods uh, out there. And then there is 
boundaries uh, that uh, basically we have to get over those kind of uh, issues. So what we have done is basically learn that and uh, use technology to facilitate a lot of the commerce. So wherever possible, we digitize products and bring it into all platform. If it is electronically delivered, we can. If it is physically delivered, then we synchronize with the supply side and the chain aspect of it and have it delivered. In some cases, you know, in distribution, we use our supply order product where now an outlet or a merchant or a business can order ahead what he needs in terms of uh, whether that is Coca-Cola or Pepsi or uh, beer, whatever the case might be the distributor gets the uh, electronic payment and now he has a forecast he has a, uh, he can control his inventory he can manage his routes he can optimize uh, all those different things if that route requires 10 uh, trucks and now it's been serviced to one now his product is being able to be delivered that's amazing so so you're not just building a payment solution you're building a full stack solution so one of the issues I see with e-commerce in a lot of markets, especially in Africa, is just a lack of addresses, Yes. right? So how do you solve for that? Well, interestingly, what we have done is with every merchant and business that we sign up, we have coordinates that uh, we have put in our app that I know exactly from a GPS standpoint, I can locate that uh, location where it is at. And we have used that for many different ways. One is to find out the location. Second, it's a way for us because our merchants are not just accepting Amole. What we are also doing is that we are aggregating enough content that can be sold digitally in our platform for merchants and agents and so forth that they can sell it for cash because e-commerce does not, you know, back in the US, the dot-com days, I had a company that was doing dot-com business. And uh, one of the things that was difficulty was electronic payment. Still in the U.S., we had issues. And what we used to do was cash on delivery. And behind the scenes, there was not much of uh, automation. We used to put up a website and that uh, form sends an email where we have a, a whole room of uh, call center agents that take those things from a queue and fulfill, they go into this archaic AS400 machines and they put in the orders. And then once uh, they put the order is done, the confirmation comes and they go out into the emails and we send it back. Hmm. And that's how uh, the dot farms we used to do. So when you take that experience and bring it into Ethiopia, okay, not much automation is there. So that's why our automation starts at the business and then goes on the supply side and on the demand side. Hmm. But the point of presence for us is a merchant, is a business, and then automate as much as possible at the business and then do the supply side to the distribution, to the factories, to the brands, and then on this side, go to the demand side and go to the actual consumer. So for the consumer, we create wallets so that they could we create convenience. For the merchant, we aggregate their products into our platform or if they are one of those that uh, you purchase with physical presence, we provide them the ability to accept. And then by selling digital products in, for cash, we don't require a wallet. But in the process that we have created a convenience for you, the second, third, after the fourth one, you will probably want a wallet so that you could do it yourself. And that has uh, helped us in terms of grow 
significantly in a short period of time. In 16 months, we are at 1.8 million subscribers and we have 7,000 merchants and agents and uh, we transact over uh, 28 million per a day move hands within our wallet in 16 months. What helped us is basically is understanding where the needs are. That's why when people see us, we look like a mobile money, but we are a mobile payment and a commerce platform. And our whole goal is to get rid of the friction in terms of commerce is concerned, whether that is the payment friction or it's logistics or it is uh, distribution. But there is some friction that we need to solve, and that's our value add. Mm, okay. And, and in closing, tell us about your integration into Telegram. That's You're going to be the, the first in the world, right? Yes, it's, uh, it would be the first in the world that uh, does payment and transactions and some of banking type of activities. Uh, so when we came up with the idea is that uh, there are certain things that have come to that. One is all of a sudden Telegram is heavily used in Ethiopia. Why Telegram over WhatsApp? Because most of Africa, WhatsApp, right? It's WhatsApp. Yes, it's WhatsApp. So why, why Telegram? <laughs> well, it has to do with our infrastructure. Our infrastructure, I mean, we are a latecomer to uh, wireless technology, cell. As a result, our network is not up everywhere. Availability is an issue. Very expensive in terms of data. So the data packages are very expensive. So what Telegram does, I mean, WhatsApp, it has a very good base, but that is used mainly in businesses and so forth and so forth. But the majority of uh, our population is young uh, guys. I mean, 70% of our population is under 30 years old. When you look at that, there is a, you know, seven, <laughs> 70 <laughs> million people. Yeah. So the young use Telegram because first, it uses very small footprint to download or to share so they can get it easily. Second, it uses a bandwidth, very minimal bandwidth in terms of sending images and all those different things. And it doesn't have any issues with uh, any images that you put on the platform. And third, it allows you to monetize in a very crude way, but there is a, a lot of different things that it can do. So those things, and then Telegram is the, the second most uh, used Telegram in the world is in Ethiopia. The number one being Iran, number two is uh, Ethiopia. So uh, when we saw that and the young population and the popularity of uh, Telegram, it begs to say, you know what? We need to embrace it. It helps that we also have an open technology, an open API technology on Amole. So we said, okay, why don't we, since we have this open API that we are exposing for any technology to consume it, why not we can Telegram to consume that products and the ability to transact just like any other application. And then we started to develop a prototype. And then uh, we interestingly, through a mutual acquaintance, got an uh, introduction to Africa Talking. When we started to talk with Africa Talking, the whole idea was to package all our API with an Africa Talking wrapper and to offer it for developers everywhere. And that's being the initial thing. And uh, while we are doing, why not do Telegram? Uh, and here's what we are thinking of doing. And here's the prototype. And they said this would be a very good use case for both of us to strengthen this relationship together. 
you need always something of a success story. And that is our success story that we did together, all our API, and put it uh, onto the market. And where is the better place to test it? Right. Ethiopia, with yeah. 5 million uh, subscribers. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we, we talk a lot about on the show about how as Africa evolves, we have to get past just repeating M-Pesa as like the case study that everyone keeps referring to as like, this is the success case. And it seems like what you're doing with Amole in Ethiopia that could be finally we move past the M-Pesa to Amole is, is, is the next generation of how fintech is going to play well, out. Thank you for uh, putting it in that fashion. But, uh, you know, we're just doing our job because with Telegram, I mean, when you do develop apps and so forth, you have to download apps and that requires, if it is on uh, Android, it requires that you have a Gmail account. And they could be huge in terms of downloading and utilizing those things. With Telegram being on your phone already, all you have to do is initialize that bot and we are in business. Mm. And uh, it makes it easy and simple. And the barrier of entry into your pocket uh, to be utilized, it's, it's a lot simpler for us. Yeah, and awesome. that, uh, so thank you for uh, uh, praising us that yeah. uh, the uh, future being uh, Amole. But uh, I think we have a lot of help and we believe in collaborating with a lot of uh, people around the continent and elsewhere. And uh, we're glad to uh, walk into uh, Africa Talking's life and uh, we can partner and make this uh, available to the Ethiopian market. Yeah, well, it seems like it's a pivotal time in Ethiopia's economy and Ethiopia's startup ecosystem. Uh, it seems like you're in, the, you're in the right place at the right time. So, Yem, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Andrew. After my conversation with Yem, I couldn't stop thinking about all the large number of young people that he mentioned in the country and the roles and opportunities for him to play in building Ethiopia's tech industry. I knew that I needed to get that perspective during the trip, and that's when I met Haptamu. So I was born here in, in Ethiopia. And when I was about 11 years old, I moved to uh, Boston, Massachusetts. So that's where I went to high school. Much colder. Uh, much, colder. much colder. Exactly. Way, way colder. <laughs> Habtamu Tedesi grew up in Ethiopia before coming to the U.S. for high school and college, and then heading back to Ethiopia afterwards. So, you know, after I went back to Ethiopia on, you know, upon completion of my internship, I reached out to Uber and they said, hey, you guys need to enter Ethiopia market. They were like, are there any cars in Ethiopia? I said, you know what? You guys don't know the market, so I should be the one, you know, to start something, but I wasn't ready. You know, I don't have the fund, and I, I don't really, you know, I grew up in the States, so I don't really understand the, the ecosystem of, you know, startups. So I said, you know what, let me uh, open up my own restaurant in Boston, and then, you know, run it for a couple of years, make a little bit of money, and then move back, and that's what I did. And uh, we launched, you know, the Ethiopia's first taxi handling company in uh, July 2016. And then the first challenge was, you know, going to the Ministry of Trade and getting a license. And I told them, hey, I'm getting into the right hailing business. I said, right what? So you're taxi hailing. You know, I heard about Uber. Everybody knows Uber. But, you know, when you, the problem is when you want to bring it to Ethiopia. You know, something similar. They're like, no, 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 we don't have a trade license specifically for this. I said, oh, yeah, you don't have to have it. As long as I pay my taxes, you know how much money I'm making. And, you know, I'm making a difference and, you know, making the transportation easier shouldn't be a problem. But they said, no, 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 unless there's a specific category for you. I said, no, Uber is registered as an internet company. So it registered me as an internet company. And they said, no, 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 if you want to register as an internet company, you have to have 20 computers, and then you provide internet service. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> so that uh, process took up about six months. Wow. And finally, you know, they put us on, on, uh, under a software development co company. 
you know, launched the service. And then we went to the banks to get a, a finance and, you know, access to f- capital in Ethiopia is the hardest thing. And that's what kills most of the startups was great ideas. And I went to the bank. They said, you know what, um, you know, you guys give out, you know, 60, 70 million dollars to us uh, investors who want to, you know, build a five star hotel, you know, but I don't need 60 million dollars. Just give me, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Let me launch our service and it will make more money than the hotel. They're like, no, 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 no. You need to have a collateral. I said, no, I grew up in the States and I have nothing. You know, I'm staying in the hotel. And, you know, I was not able to get that. So that was the biggest challenge. Then what I did is, you know, I took four months off and I went to the States and then approached different, uh, you know, VCs. And uh, most of them didn't really understand Ethiopia. And some of them did actually never heard of the country. So I say, okay, if that is the case, then I need to uh, find, you know, successful Ethiopian diasporas with a lot of, you know, capital. And at the same time, you know, they have attachment to the country. So at least they would do it for the attachment, maybe not for the profit. And, you know, we're able to get about seven investors. So that's how we raised our uh, uh, seed investment. Then came back and then, you know, the, the app was ready. Then we launched it. Then one thing that we learned is that, you know, in America, everything is, you know, when you want to uh, book Uber, you do it through the application. Done. In Ethiopia, even people with a smartphone, internet access, it was like fast internet access, they'll prefer calling. So I said, okay, let, why don't we build in a call center and see, you know, how many people would actually use the call center versus the application. And then we launched our uh, call center about a year ago. And now 60% of the requests that comes through the call center than the application. Mm. So more and more people, because that's why we always say Ethiopia is different. So if you want to try a business and then successful in Kenya, it doesn't mean you're going you're gonna to succeed in Ethiopia. So the, 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 the way our you know, people, the society behaves, the way that customers uh, behave is way different. People want to see something tangible, attachments with the human voice and so on. This is why, you know, when you open up a bank account in Ethiopia, people take that leisure, you know, keep it in their pocket because that leisure equals to the amount, the amount of money they have in their bank account. So that kind of the security that they have. There are many great lessons in Haptamu's journey building Zayride, but take a listen about how he turned one of the business's biggest obstacles into a huge opportunity. So, you know, the biggest challenge, you know, uh, for Sayride was, uh, uh, you know, a payment platform. So in Ethiopia, we don't have any credit card processing companies. And, you know, the, none of the, the banks offer that. And some of the banks, you know, have USSD-based, something similar to uh, M-Pesa, but only works for that specific bank. So it only makes the money, you know, rotate with the bank. So, you know, we, we have customers uh, which banks with different banks. So it didn't really work for us. So we said, you know what, we need to come up with our own payment platform that will make our, you know, ride-hailing company simpler. And same for our drivers, safer, because, you know, they don't have to carry cash anymore. So, so we thought we need to develop something similar to a Square app, but we need to make it, you know, accessible to every businesses like restaurants, shoe shiners, or big hotels. So, you know, we developed that application and we're ready to go live next week. Interesting. And so, and so it's mainly just until this point and probably still just cash-based. Everything, I would say 98% is, is wow. cash-based. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's very, that's very kind of, I mean, against the grain of even right next door. <laughs> Kenya. Exactly. That's very yeah. interesting contrast. That's exactly. You know, for the first time, actually last year, hundred uh, percent of the transactions or GDP was uh, transacted through M-Pesa, uh, uh, USSD based or digital. 
in Ethiopia. We are about 10 years behind Kenya. Forget Europe or the rest of the developed countries. That's why there's so much opportunity here right now, right? Exactly. That's what I see. I mean, there are so many problems, but for me, problem equals still uh, opportunities. Yeah. So it's an untapped market. There's so so much we could do. And and I think, you know, when you see the number of startups, you know, popping up a couple of years ago, it's way smaller. Now it's just everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I think that's that's what we need. As with running businesses across many frontier markets, you'll occasionally face gaps in the market where vendors or service providers are either non-existent locally or unreliable. But with the right perspective and a little bit of grit, what would normally be a cost center for your business can become a profit center or even an entirely separate business. So there you have it, insider insights of Ethiopia's nascent tech sector that just so happens to exist in parallel to a consistently growing economy with GDP growth hitting about 8-10% to each year for the past decade and a half. To say that opportunity is abundant might just be underselling the ecosystem, but I'll leave you all with one last word from Haptanmu. Don't expect things to be as uh, organized as you know, Western countries. Don't have any expectations and don't see things from the Western perspective. Uh, for example, uh, if you want to get a, a trade license in, the, the, in, in America or anywhere else, you know, it takes you a few minutes so you can even apply it from uh, on a web and you can have the trade license being uh, you know, mailed to your house, right? That's not the case in Ethiopia. Or if you go and ask information, people would say no because they have lack of information. So don't take no's. Uh, when it comes to Ethiopia, and then the, the, the process takes, you know, people would take for, you know, signing uh, a check or signing on, on a paper. All it takes is two seconds, right? People would tell you to come back next week, you know, what they could do it, you know, while you're, you're there. So don't have that expectations. But the market's there as, as, as much as the challenges. But once you pass the challenges, uh, no one would stop you from being profitable. Hey guys, Andrew here. Just want to give one more warm thank you to Adu Communications for sponsoring this podcast. Adu Communication Service PLC is one of Ethiopia's leading technology infrastructure solutions provider, serving business needs in telecommunications, software development and maintenance, information system solutions, and intelligent and renewable energy solutions towards improving lives in the communities across Africa. Visit Adu Communications, that's A-D-I-U Communications.com to learn more.